Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi there and welcome to the Stop Club podcast, coming to you from the top floor of my Wall Street HQ here in Dublin, Ireland. I'm James and with me this week is my Wall Street co-founder and chief investor Emmett Savage and our head analyst Rory Caron. Today, we're talking about Beyond Meat partnering up with McDonald's, asking if Amazon is going to kill off Teladoc, and picking our favourite payments company. Right, so we'll kick off today with the same way we kicked off the last two episodes, talking about WeWork. Rory, what has happened with Adam Newman? Well, he's gone, (laughs) uh, is the short answer. And um, he came to an agreement with his biggest investor, uh, SoftBank, to step aside, he's now the non-executive chairman. They've brought in two co-CEOs, um, one of whom is a kind of tech veteran who worked in Amazon for years, and the other one is kind of a, a Newman loyalist, I suppose, is the is the best term for him. He was CFO for WeWork. So it'll be interesting to see how the two uh, CEOs deal with what is a real kind of dumpster fire at this point. <laughs> yes. But I, I, there was some very interesting news about him during the week. Did you see what he's after backing? Go ahead. Did you see it? No. He's backed a business called Selena, and it's a London-based company that provides travellers with co-working spaces, accommodation, and leisure facilities. So he's after going in on a business uh, that is basically, to my eyes, we work meets Airbnb. Well, he had they had something along those lines. I saw part of their investor deck that was leaked. Uh, where they were talking about We Live, which was basically We Work for uh, oh. accommodation. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm not surprised at all. It's surely there's is there some sort of there must be some sort of non compete clause. You would think. But I'm just looking that here. Very. It, yeah, it's so close. But it currently has 54 locations. This company, Selena, in Latin America and Europe, with a total of more than 12,000 beds, which I guess is starter level, and it aims to offer 130,000 beds across more than 400 locations by 2023. So it's really that you go to work, live there, work there, you know, socialize there. Feudalism. <laughs> I'm, I'm all, I I'm all for idea. bringing that back. Uh, me too. Me too. Let's get some beds. Um, but so yeah, that's I mean, and the the IPO has been pulled. Yeah, uh, that's the big news, really. Yeah, that is S, the big news. S one has been officially withdrawn. But I think like what's interesting about this whole saga, I think, is that there's just so many elements of it which seem kind of like the the apex of everything that was kind of going wrong in the world of investing. Um, really kind of highlighted by this real sort of disconnect between Silicon Valley and Wall Street. Uh, the first, the first thing's definitely like this kind of cult of the CEO that, that mm. you know, there's plenty of other examples of it. Newman was definitely in that that zone. You know, he was, if reading about him, he seemed to be this real, like, insanely ambitious guy. Um, when Pete, when he talked about the business, he wasn't talking about starting an office rental company. He was talking about an entirely different way of people living their lives, you know, brought down to that one 
sentence in their uh, S1, which was, we want to elevate the world's consciousness. Yeah. Written uh, by his wife, is that right? I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Apparently that was one of the things uh, my my Yoshi-san had a big problem with in the S1 and the two of them had a big falling out over it. But, really? I mean, look, I've read several interviews with people who'd met him. They all agree that he was this guy who was just like absolutely brimming with confidence and optimism and really could make you believe in his vision. And so, I, and, that, and that's really like the venture capital world, isn't it? You know, when you pitch is, to venture yeah. capitalists, they're not really interested in the skill set you have. It's all about the person and the and the personality and the vision and the, it, can you sell this? You know, if, if you were to like give a venture capitalist the WeWork business model on a piece of paper, they would probably laugh you out of the room. Yeah. But you get this young guy with who's tall and has the hair and where it doesn't wear shoes and he comes yeah. in and he sells it to you and says look this is what we're going to do we're going to change the world and they all start going okay we better get involved with what yeah. this guy's right what if yeah. he is the the second coming <laughs> I you know? just, just when you're true. saying that I think I'm, I'm paraphrasing Scott Galloway here but in a piece he wrote this week about Adam Newman he said in the tech industry if you tell a 30 year old guy he's Jesus he's inclined to believe you <laughs> <laughs> I thought that just kind of summed the whole situation perfectly. but there's actually part Parallels. John, JT, John Terrell and I, when we co-founded My Wall Street those years ago, about five years ago, he and I were sitting in a VC firm on Wall Street and uh, it was a room, as these things go, full of uh, suits um, from Wall Street and, and intelligent, experienced veterans of the financial world. And we explained that we had no aspirations in My Wall Street, which at the time was called RubyCoin to be a stock broker because we said it's a race to the bottom. In fact, we know this guy out in the valley, Robin Hood, and they've gone to zero. And a big debate ensued in the office and, and all 15 or so of the guys in the room, and unfortunately it was an all-male meeting, uh, all the guys in the room uh, were of the mind that Robin Hood would never succeed. We've seen it all before. It's crazy. They don't know how it works over here on Wall Street. And John and I, you know, stood our corner and said, well, that's fine, but we just don't have the aspiration or the core competencies or the desire to go into competition on a business that already exists mm. that charges nothing. And at that time, we'd spoken with the founders of of Robin Hood and we knew the guys and and um and and on Wall Street the old world way of thinking was prevailing. It was like, oh we've seen it all before and there was zero commission brokers in the past. I think Zecco was the big one and uh we agreed to disagree and got on with what we've gotten on with and and it's funny to your point, Rory, it just comes straight back around the full circuit. And I think that um we work um on this and this current chapter hasn't worked out the way Evan anticipated mm-hmm. But the next, it will either rise again or something like it will come along. That's one of the most interesting things about the story now is that like this company has gotten this far, not based on profit, certainly not, I don't think, based on a business model, but based on this guy. So yeah. now that he is yeah. gone, now he's not running the show, yeah. what is it going to be built on? Is it just going to be SoftBank pumping in more and more money to generate growth in this business? Because yeah. that really seems like the spot that they are now stuck in. Because if yeah. they don't keep growing fast, they are not going to survive very long. Absolutely. And, you know, you really do need to kind of now look at so- other soft bank investments and think, how wrong have they been on other things? What's the other big soft bank investment? Uber. Uber's the big other. And, mm. and you know, like... For the last kind of five years, Uber was kind of launching in new markets and then SoftBank was investing in the competitor and basically pulling Uber out of it. You like look at Diddy Chung in China, um, Ola in India, Grab in Southeast Asia. um, And Uber was in there and SoftBank basically went to them and said, guys, you're not going to win this fight. So take a take a cut 
of Grab or take a cut of Diddy Chung and we'll make sure there's a kind of monopoly player in that space. But now you've got Uber, which is owned, yeah. owns minority interests in yeah. what are kind of probably overvalued companies as well. So there's this whole domino effect yeah. to this soft bank driven valuing companies one on this like the valuations are all based on SoftBank sitting down with the CEO of the company. And Entirely. As soon, and so this is, I mean, the WeWork thing is a massive success of the public markets because yeah. about $40 billion has been lost on paper in yeah. the last month. And that could have been registered by pension funds and retirement funds and mom and pop investors. But it came to the public markets and the market said, nope, not having that, sorry. And that's a big point to make, I think, as well, that we, we kind of, we laugh at Adam Newman that, you know, he's he's not the CEO and he's kind of, being slowly removed from the company, but he sold a lot of stock before before this all kind of mm. hit the fan. Yeah, there's a part of me that feels he's kind of the scapegoat in this whole thing. Yeah, um, I think you know, SoftBank have a big part to play in it as well. They were the yeah. ones who were pumping money into this thing and, and telling everyone it was going to be the next greatest thing. Uh, it's easy then when you see those kind of Wall Street uh, journal profiles of them smoking marijuana and just talking about wanting to be president of the world it's easy then to divert the attention onto him yeah um but you know there's it takes two to tango and, yeah uh, they they were the ones who invested two billion dollars at a 47 billion dollar valuation yeah in the last year or so yeah but so i mean i know the this piece really isn't meant to be about SoftBank, but we, Roy, uh, had a good debate a couple of years ago about adding SoftBank to our shortlist mm-hmm. of handpicked stocks. And uh, we had reason to pause, but what we did learn, I think, at times how incredibly diversified they are oh, huge. and how they have a really significant stake in so many businesses that we just can't buy at the moment. Mm-hmm. And um, a few names popped to mind, like there was, uh, was it Boston Robotics? Yeah, the, yeah. It was Boston <clears throat> Robotics the name of the business? Like yeah. they, they really have bought out some of the most impressive tech businesses we've seen over the last few years. Yeah, no, but this, I think this whole WeWork thing is kind of bringing up that question of like, at what yeah, cost? At what cost? Yeah, you know, this is true. Yeah. yeah, the CEO, Son, has said multiple times he wants big bang investments. And I think there may be a point where he has conflated the amount of money you pump into a company with the potential money you get out of a company and that doesn't always work out. Yeah, so um, yeah. this is a prime example of that. Absolutely. Moving on to a company then that has successfully gone public this year, Beyond Meat. So we're starting to see Beyond Meat burgers pop up everywhere. We were we went for our own Beyond Meat burgers there a few weeks ago. But the big news from the last week was that McDonald's are trialing the PLT. Rory, do you want to explain what a PLT is? Yeah, so it's their it's a new burger that they are testing. It's this is now when we talk about small testing or limited testing, this is as better limited as it gets. Uh, they're trialing it in twelve for twelve weeks mm. in twenty eight restaurants in southwestern Ontario. So I mean that is small. There's yeah. fifteen hundred restaurants, yeah, McDonald's just in Canada. Um, this was really what like this was a kind of new cycle that Beyond really needed. It's a company that's trading at 52 times price to sales. Yeah. So, you know, McDonald's is the white whale of this space and for Beyond to get it, it would be a huge uh, win for them. But the I don't think they've got it just yet. I think investors may be celebrating a little bit too early. And to that point, there's an awful lot of change have brought in these either either Beyond or the rival Impossible Burger. And if you look down the list, uh, you see that nearly uh, pretty much every single one of them has leaned into those brands. So uh, Burger King have the Impossible Whopper. Carl Jr.'s has the Beyond Famous Star. 
Fat Burger has the Impossible Fat Burger. Little Caesar has the Impossible Spring. You know, literally every single chain. They're leveraging that brand equity. Yeah, because it differentiates it from your usual vegetarian burger, which people typically don't, don't like. <laughs> yeah. Typically dry and not very appealing. Yeah. So all these brands have taken on the name, taken on the Impossible or the Beyond brand. And I thought it was quite telling that McDonald's didn't. They've Instead, they've launched the PLT, which is the plant lettuce tomato. Mm. Uh, it's using a Beyond uh, patty, but they haven't called it like, you know, they haven't called it the Beyond Big Mac or the Beyond McDonald's Beyond Burger. Uh, I have a funny feeling that the reason for that is they don't want to tie this product to a single supplier yeah. in Beyond. I yeah. think, you know, if this, they're going to test this in a very small market, they're going to see how it sells. But McDonald's is a huge, huge uh, contract. Like mm. whoever gets that contract is going to have some serious logistics and supply chain issues, distribution issues to, to, to contend with. And first of all, Beyond probably doesn't have yeah. the ability mm. to do that yet. And secondly, Beyond's really expensive. Those burgers are costly. It's yeah. I think in the buy it in the supermarket, they're like six dollars a six or seven dollars a which McDonald's is not gonna pass on to its customers. That's not no. what McDonald's customers yeah. want. So yeah. I've a funny feeling the PLT is a strategic decision that lets them basically launch that burger anywhere with any supplier. So if you've got people like Tyson getting in there uh, in Germany, uh, a brand that Nestle own are supplying their plant-based alternatives. So uh, I think it's quite a, a slick move by McDonald's because they've gotten now, they've gotten the new cycle of the Beyond Burger in McDonald's and now they've kind of got limited scope or unlimited scope to take that in whatever direction they want. Yeah. And this is something that we kind of talked about, I think, a few episodes back in, in the importance of not conflating a company with the industry. So, you know, there's always been a lot of talk and a lot of hype around Beyond Meat and what they're doing and the impact then on the larger environment and vegetarianism and veganism and all of that. But investing in Beyond Meat doesn't necessarily mean you're you're investing in the best company in that industry. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, to to even Roy's point there about how it's not a done deal. Yeah. You know, recently, uh, Tim Hortons, the the cornerstone of, I guess, Canadian fast casual dining and coffee, they also ran a trial with Beyond's Burgers. Now, I, I'm not too sure about Tim Hortons. I always thought they were more a coffee house than a burger house, but mm-hmm. clearly have to, to, to study their menu a little more closely. But they decided not to go to it. Mm. So they abandoned okay. the burger. Um, yeah. For what reasons, I'm not sure. And I agree with you that the, the whole PLT thing is such a small test in 28 locations. And, and it, unless you're Coca-Cola, I think you will not see another brand inside one of those giant chains. It doesn't make sense for them to to partner with something. You know, there's there's an old expression that a startup uh, that goes into a strategic partnership with another startup has, you know, multiplied their risk by 10, you yeah. know, a risk multiplied by a risk on an exponential scale. But like in this one, I think that McDonald's has grown up enough to know that this really has to be lowballed, whereas Impossible Food CEO described it as they've landed Moby Dick. I think yeah. he said, which uh, was, I guess, to your point, Rory. You know, really trying to maximise the news impact. Yeah, and look, you know, McDonald's know this industry better than anyone else. Um, there could be a sense where they know what I kind of suspect for a while, which is that there is a novelty to this whole thing. Yeah, um, that you know, you. you us three went and tried it. Yeah, we and I went and, again. By the way, with another friend to yeah. give another shot. We're not vegetarians. We not. Yeah. we don't go down that route. But we decided to go and try it, and I think that's going to happen an awful lot in America and yeah. in wherever these these burgers are launched. Yeah. But 
will they still be selling them at these levels in a year or two years? Mm. Not so sure. Yeah, interesting. Right, so to move on to our company we never talk about. So last week, shares in Teladoc, one of the companies in our app, fell after Amazon announced that it was launching its own pilot healthcare system that included telemedicine care called Amazon Care. Um, so for this week's company we never talk about, I we thought we'd jump a little bit more into Teladoc and look at how much of a threat Amazon really is to them. Yeah, so it's not, it's not really a typical company we never talk about in terms of it's very much focused on this story. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to start off with a with a story from a couple of years ago, which I think is apt, which is that on October 8th in 2015, uh, USA Today had the following headline, um, Amazon launches its Etsy killer, handmade by Amazon. Uh, the following day, uh, stock in Etsy fell 11%. Uh, the next day, it fell another six percent. The next day, it fell another five percent. And by February the next year, the stock had dropped seventy five percent since oh, the announcement. Wow. Now, obviously, that wasn't all Amazon. They there was you know they yeah, earnings and earnings stuff like that as well. Stuff, but yeah. uh, they the the company shed three quarters of its value in six months following that announcement. Um, but of course, we know handmade by Amazon didn't turn out to be an Etsy killer. In fact, if you'd bought Etsy at the low point, you'd be up eightfold at this stage. So you know it. it this, that that was kind of the the um, the inspiration for a daily insight we did a couple of weeks ago on when you hear these headlines, uh, mm. big company launches small Something company killer, killer <laughs> you know, uh, and how a lot of the times it just doesn't work out. We've seen it with Facebook tried to push in on LinkedIn and uh, and, and, and well, Facebook do it pretty much everyone yeah. really like anything they they see they try to go after. I think Microsoft's trying with Slack at the moment. Uh, so, I mean, this kind of it timed very well with this uh, idea of Amazon launching a Teladoc killer. Uh, the if you look into it, it really seems totally overblown. Yeah. Uh, the the business, which is called Amazon Care, is a tiny, tiny pilot program, uh, specifically for Amazon employees uh, around the Seattle area. Uh, it's something that they obviously Amazon's the second biggest employer in the U.S. So this is obviously something that they have seen as a problem that they need addressing, which yeah. is getting their getting their employees uh, healthcare at a cheap, affordable way and keeping them, you know, healthy enough to be working and, and all this stuff. So this is this is a very small thing that they're trying to try. I think it's massively over overblown as a threat mm. to Teladoc. Mm. Um there's I think probably there's kind of two likely scenarios emerging from this. The first is that Amazon in its uh, in its attempt to get into the healthcare space, will buy a telemedicine company, mm-hmm. uh, possibly Teladoc. Uh, the other, which I think is possibly more likely, is that Amazon will end up partnering with a couple of different telemedicine companies, Teladoc definitely being one because they are the largest and broadest in terms of their network. Uh, and they'll build out a network of telemedicine vendors which they could potentially offer to prime customers as okay. uh, as a form of healthcare. Yeah. Uh, and that would be not a threat to Teladoc. That would probably be a big boon to Teladoc. Absolutely, um, yeah. You know, I think it might even be Scott Galloway said something along the lines of, if Amazon's not after your business, you don't have a business. <laughs> so <laughs> so when, we, when you see things like Handmade by Amazon, yeah, they didn't, they didn't go after Etsy because they just for the fun of it they clearly yeah. saw a business there and decided that they wanted to try and get in on it and you know a lot of the time with Amazon I do think they're throwing X against the wall and seeing what sticks yeah um, <laughs> but clearly Jeff Bezos has his eyes on healthcare and this is dipping their toe into it that they did it with PillPack last year the acquisition of PillPack yeah and th- there's also the, the the group I can't remember the name now that he's involved with with um 
with Warren Buffett and oh, Jamie Dimon. Is what yeah. they named it. Yeah, it's a joint uh, operation between those three businesses to, to specifically for the employees yeah. of those businesses, but obviously could expand when they see it working, if they see it working. But one of the other things is, you know, healthcare is a highly regulated industry. And if there's one thing Amazon wants to avoid right now, it's more regulatory scrutiny. Yeah. <laughs> um, pulling it back a bit to Teladoc, you know, just I think that business just keeps getting better and better yeah. every time I look at it. Uh, revenue is up 40% year over year for the first six months of this year. Uh, number of patient visits grew 73%. Um, I think the Amazon headline is all a bunch of noise and any time you see weakness in it, it's a good opportunity. Absolutely. We we um we debated whether we should introduce a new feature uh, called, <laughs> called well I mean I thought it was a good idea now granted I did come up with it but um so the overused acronym Fang you know the Fang bite bites yeah, you um, yeah Facebook Amazon uh, Apple Netflix and Google although Google's now called. Uh, Alphabet. Alphabet, thank you. So it should it's be fan, <laughs> but will fan ruin your business? And maybe you know we we can talk about the fangs of death in a future episode. <laughs> Stay tuned for that. Yeah. Um, so just to talk, I'm about getting a lukewarm kind of reception here in the studio. <laughs> I love it. Yes, brilliant. <laughs> so I just want to mention some of the new stuff in the My Wall Street app at the moment. We have October stock of the month um, live in the app on Monday. It's a company that's leading the disruption of one of the most prohibitively expensive parts of the US economy. Rory, I won't ask you to give a, a teaser. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you can check that out on Monday. We're also adding a brand new stock to the app the week after that, joining our list of stocks that has returned an overall average of 51% to date, easily beating the S&P 500. Um, the last thing I want to remind you of is that, that we're now five weeks away from the in-person event in New York City. If you like the Stock Club podcast, you'll definitely want to be at in-person. It's a one-day live event on November 8th, where you'll hear Emmett talk about what it took for him to beat the market three times over every single year for two decades. Um, he'll then walk you through exactly how you can do it too, and you'll walk away with strategies, ideas, and proven investing tactics from the day. Emmett, we recently had our in-person event here in Dublin. How did that go? It was great. It sold out. I was absolutely in my element, and I think... Uh, I'm pretty certain everyone who was there left totally charged and excited and the feedback we got was rapturous and uh, like I'm in my I truly am happiest when I'm imparting what little I've learned in this life of mine <laughs> and do you know like there, the thing about stock investing is it, it is an absolute passion of mine and um, when you have a passion you don't stop doing it at five o'clock I I stock invest in my mind 24-7 and have done for a long time. And what I really, really believe in is explaining things as uh, simply as possible because yeah. every concept can be brought down to a very simple set of rules. And uh, while uh, I think it was Warren who said that, you know, if stock investing was easy, every librarian would be a millionaire. It might have been Peter Lynch, was it? But uh, that is a trivialization, I think, of, yeah. of something that's actually true. You don't need to de dedicate yourself uh, as a career to beat this S&P 500. You just need to follow a roadmap and yeah. in person lays out that roadmap and I'm delighted to do it and I'm very excited about the forthcoming event in New yeah. York. So that's November 8th in New York and seats are very limited So we do, and we do expect them to sell out so make sure to click on the link in today's notes um, to get your ticket today. Right, let's move on to Jargon Busters. So we have two questions in this week. 
The first one um, is actually a combined question from two different users. So they asked, why are some companies listed on separate exchanges in different countries? Is there any difference in the stock on the different exchanges? And is there a foreign exchange risk in investing on these different stocks? A lot of questions there. Yeah, so this is uh, more commonly known as a dual listing okay. if there's two exchanges involved. And more typically, you see a dual listing for multinational corporations who, who tend to list on their home exchange and then on one of the giant well-known exchanges, most usually NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the way you'd reduce the overall concept to two words or, or three words is it increases window space. Okay. So if you take um, Vodafone, the telecoms giant, they're listed in London and they're listed on the New York Stock Exchange and effectively it's the same business and liquidity or shares are available on both of those exchanges and the, therefore locals can invest uh, in their local exchange and, and that's just kind of it's a window space thing. Yeah. Um, so in order to be listed on one more than one stock exchange you need to meet the criteria of all the exchanges on which you are listed Yeah. and um, generally uh, the stock price on exchange A and exchange B will tightly follow each other. Okay. Um, not 100% overlap 100% at a time, but uh, yes, they, they've, over, the, over the wider term, they absolutely follow each other. And the question of foreign exchange risk, yeah, if you're going to buy shares in, on an exchange that isn't in your home currency, yes, you are ca- carrying an exchange risk. The way I've dealt with that, because... Everything I've ever invested has been in US dollars. I have never earned US dollars. So over my life, I have taken what remained at the end of the month, converted to US dollars and bought shares. But over the very long term, I'm an absolute believer that you will out-invest exchange rates, which over the very long term are cyclical. But over the very long term, stock investments are not cyclical. They rise, they gain in value. So yes, you do carry a risk when you buy a foreign currency and invest it. Uh, and that's just, I suppose, it's another dynamic in mm-hmm. your returns. But I certainly don't think, uh, I've never expended any thought or energy as to what it actually means because yeah. you'll buy a certain amount of dollars in today's money and you'll invest them and that's where that investment should stay for years. Okay. Of course, cool. the currency could also turn in your favour as well. Oh, absolutely. So. <laughs> and I've seen that effect too. You're dead right. And, you know, the question of taxes then comes in, but I am not going to tackle that <laughs> on this podcast. So, cool. Um, uh, one exciting <laughs> podcast that will be the question of international tax reconciliation. <laughs> Brought to you by my Wall Street. <laughs> right, moving on then. Um, so recently, President Trump threatened to delist Chinese stocks from the US stock exchanges. So we have a lot of Chinese companies in our app. And one of our users asked Rory, what would happen if these Chinese companies were delisted? Yeah, so I'm not going to spend too much time on this because I think the actual chances of it happening are pretty much zero. Yeah. Um, And I know what you're thinking. How can you be so sure with uh, the White House that is currently operating? (laughs) But uh, firstly, uh, uh, the White House has come out and said that that report was not true and that it's not going to happen. Okay. Um, secondly, my knowledge of financial regulation is not the, the best, but so I stand to be corrected. But from what I've read, neither the president nor the SEC actually can delist okay, a company yeah. from uh, an exchange. That's down to the exchanges themselves who can flag a company to the SEC who can then approve a, delist, a delisting. So they can't just kick a company can't off. Can't just kick the them all off, yeah. Um, there's so much more. Like reading up on this, it just, it's such a minefield of 
bizarre information like the fact that if you're invested in Alibaba right now, technically you're not invested in a Chinese company. China doesn't allow uh, foreign direct investment in their internet companies. What you're actually investing in is a kind of holding company that's based okay. in the Cayman Islands that owns a bunch of shares in Alibaba. So um, they're called VIEs, variable interest entities. So we won't get into that. <laughs> uh, I mean, look, worst, I think, you know, reading a couple of articles on it, I think the worst case scenario that would happen if they were delisted, which they won't be, would be that they'd continue to trade over the counter in the style yeah. of 10 cent. Yeah, I think the most important thing you said there is it's not going to something that's going to happen overnight either or across the board. It's not you're not going to wake up one morning and find all your stocks delisted. I don't think it's going to happen at all. But yeah, yeah. I don't either. I don't either, and I, I get I get President Trump's point, but uh, really that that I think is. Uh, up there with kind of crocodiles in, in, in the moat. I don't think it's going to happen. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of things that they. I mean, reading into this, there's an awful lot of things they do need to do with certain Chinese companies. There's a yeah. lot of backhanded tactics that to Chinese smaller Chinese companies in particular use to get on the exchanges, which they definitely do need to crack down on. Yeah, but I don't see them taking Baidu, uh, Alibaba, yeah, or any of those companies mm. off the off the listings anytime soon. Yeah, okay. Good. So let's move on then to our elevator pitch. So for this week's elevator pitch, I asked you guys to pick your favourite payments company. Uh, Emmett, we'll come to you first. What yeah. company do you want to pick? How long have I got? Uh, how long do you want? 60 or 30? Give it, I'll tell you what, I'll give you 15 seconds on what I nearly picked and then I'll give you 15 seconds on what <laughs> I actually picked. How about that? You're getting three companies with a price of two. <laughs> well, the company I wanted to pitch was Square. Okay. Um, because simply I like what they've done and I think they've done it very well. And about six weeks ago they reported and they, they beat on earnings, but they missed total payments volume, which means that the volume of cash flowing through Square isn't what they anticipated. So that kind of goes into second place for me. And the stock I'm going to pick is MasterCard. Yeah. And it's simply because uh, they earn a fee every time someone uses one of their 2.6 billion debit cards wow. and credit cards. Um, and it results in in a massive, massive, massive toll gate business. The card processing fees and our ancillary businesses produced about four billion in revenue and two billion in profits in Q2 alone. So uh, MasterCard's my pick. MasterCard. Rory, your favorite payments company. Uh, you only get one. Yeah, well you're not getting you're not getting three companies for two because I, <laughs> I picked MasterCard as well. Okay. But well, why do you like MasterCard? Well, I mean, look, the boss has already said all the all the all the good <laughs> points. No, look, I mean, payments is just it's one of those spaces that is rapidly evolving. It's been doing so for the last decade now, but I still think it's such early days. I don't think we've even scratched the surface of what the internet and and cloud based applications in particular can do in this space. And the company I think that's going to do best out of that is Mastercard, simply because you know between them and Visa, they have an unrivaled global network. Yeah. Um. They, like you said, Emmett, they are a toll gate or a toll booth business. You know, whatever happens down the value chain, they're not really that concerned because they know yeah. eventually there is going to be money passing through that network. Yeah. And the reason I would go with MasterCard over Visa um, and over PayPal, even because I like PayPal as well, is because I think they have a real innovative leg culture. Uh, they're always trying to invest in the value chain and find places where they can improve and get and get and create value. They even they just invested or just acquired a Scandinavian company called Nets, which was their biggest acquisition in the last decade for yeah. three point two billion, which is one kind of a, a version of them now in the peer to peer kind of payment space. So yeah, I just I love the leadership. I love what they've done with that company over the last 
20 years since it's gone public and it's just uh, look at the chart it's yeah. just, there's not, not much yeah. else you can say <laughs> it's had a small downturn over the last few weeks which yeah. I guess if there's ever been a, it's it's at it's June lows or something yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's a double endorsement yeah. of MasterCard yeah. can't get much better than that yeah. <laughs> so that's about it from this week's Stock Club don't forget about all the great new stuff in the My Wall Street app at the moment and also if you're interested in in-person event in New York on November 8th um, just visit the link in today's show notes um, if there's anything you want us to discuss or explain on the next episode of Stock Club please make sure to get in touch with Twitter that's at MyWallStreetHQ or email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com that's P-O-D at MyWallStreet.com don't forget to subscribe to Stock Club too and if you're enjoying the podcast please leave us a review on whatever player you listen to us on that's about it from us here so we'll talk to you in two weeks <laughs> Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.